Well, please be seated. But don't get too cozy and comfortable in that comfortable chair of yours. I want you to pretend that you are in the Kiva at Uplift High School and that there's no lumbar support and that you have to really sit up straight and participate and lean forward and have an open Bible and we're going we're gonna to preach the gospel this morning and we're going we're gonna to hear the gospel this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Father Aaron Damiani. My wife Laura and I live with our kids in Chicago and we're making the most of this time together doing our work, keeping our kids going on their schoolwork and just making the most of it. And I'm sure you're making the most of it as well. I think right now we're in a very much an in-between time right now where we're sheltering in place and we're not quite sure what's going to be after this. When we emerge from our houses, when we emerge from the quarantine, is the world going to be better or worse than when we found it? And I think a lot of us feel like, well, it's, we're looking forward to getting out, but also we're a little afraid of what we're going to find when we get out. Um, will our job be there when we, when we go back? Will the, the opportunities that we had planned for be there when we're going back? Will the world be economically worse off? Will the opportunities and things that we've been putting our hopes in uh, not going to be there anymore? Will there be suffering people? Will the hospitals be filled? And so we're kind of, in some ways, we're waiting in place and just sort of bracing ourselves for like what's out there and how bad is it going to be. Uh, I uh, was really encouraged this week as I was reading our gospel text this morning because I found that there were actually disciples of Jesus, people who had spent years with him, who were very much in the similar place, quarantined at home, really afraid for what was out there, afraid for kind of like the brave new world that they were going to have to face. And that was exactly the place where Jesus met them. That was exactly um, the kinds of hearts, the conditions of the heart that the resurrection Lord brought his power in life to. And so as we open this text in John 20, as we open this story from the biography of Jesus, written by an eyewitness of his, my hope is that he'd give us the same hope in our situation as well, because he's alive. He's the same Jesus. He's the same Lord. Um, and he is Lord over death and over sickness, and he can envelop our life and our situation with his peace. So I invite you to turn to John 20 as we look at this eyewitness testimony. Um, we're going to look at some just some traumatized people um, and just seeing what they see and finding what they find. Um, we might even put a headline over the first four verses of John 20, of things are horrible on the surface. Things are horrible on the surface. And maybe you felt that way before, maybe you feel that way now, that the situation that you're finding yourself in is just sort of like on the surface, it's just horrible. And there's just no way around the death of it. There's no way around the loss of it. Um, verse 1, let's look at that together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene here is, uh, is a dear, dear woman. She's been through a lot in her life, and her world has totally been shattered, shattered to pieces. Before she met Jesus, Mary Magdalene had been filled personally, oppressed by seven demons uh, that haunted her and, and controlled her actions, and would have had her uh, go all the way to the grave if they could have. Her life was an absolute wreck before she met Jesus. And when, he met, when she met Jesus, he delivered her. Um, he uh, set her free. And then he invited her to follow him. And he gave her community. He gave her hope. He gave her life. 
And then to her horror, after three years of following Jesus, she watched Jesus be put on trial, unjustly accused, uh, and then put on the cross. She watched him suffocate to death. She watched him bleed to death on the cross. It was her healer, her king, that was being put to death. And she wasn't even able to give him a proper burial. Like right as he was dying, the Sabbath began, and there are rules around um, burial actions on the Sabbath. She had to actually go to her home. She wasn't even given the opportunity to give her Lord and her Savior and her healer a proper burial. And um, so the minute that those Sabbath restrictions lifted, um, it was still dark outside. Sunday morning, she, she rose, she got up, and she went to the tomb. may have been that she took a couple of companions with her as well, some of the other women. Now, what she finds when she leaves her house horrifies her. It's like what she sees on the surface is, is absolutely terrible. If you look at the second half of verse 1, it says this, Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, even in these pre-dawn hours, Mary can see that the seal of the tomb had been rolled away. And for Mary, this can only mean one thing. It meant that someone came and took the body of her Lord to add insult to injury. If you've ever had a loved one die, you know that it's no small matter how their body is treated after death. That actually how you treat the body after death is symbolic of how you felt about the person and how you regarded that person before they died. You want to honor their, their corpse. You want to treat it with dignity and respect. And this is like the last thing that Mary has of Jesus is his dead body. And so uh, the thought that someone would have after the horror of the crucifixion and after Mary had lost the opportunity to take care of Jesus' body and give it a proper burial, that someone would come in and, and, and have, the, have the gall to move the stone away, to take his body out and to further desecrate it and put it out in the streets for the birds to eat or for the dogs to eat would have been terrible. It would have been like adding insult to injury and just a, a horrible thing to, to find on a Sunday morning after the restrictions were lifted. Um, so verse 2 tells us what she did. Um, verse 2, Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who was John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, so Mary and maybe her companions go to the house of Simon Peter and uh, John, just where, wherever they were staying. Um, it could have been that, like, Peter... And, and John were like sleeping fitfully as they had sort of, you know, sort of passed the night knowing that their Lord had been crucified and maybe even feeling themselves afraid that at any minute they could be arrested for following him. Or maybe they're like looking pensively out the window and just can't sleep and, and just waiting for whatever's next, looking out the window wondering what kind of world is going to be out there when I emerge from this house. And just imagine the shock of Mary Magdalene pops in and uh, she's breathless, and she's like, they've taken the Lord. We don't know where they found him. And just the, the beating heart that you would have and, and just the, the rude awakening on a Sunday morning that, that it turns out that it is a lot worse out there than you thought it was going to be. And so Peter and John, they, they do what they can. They maybe put on their sandals and put on a shirt, and, and they go racing. They go racing to the tomb. It says in verse 3, Peter went out to, uh, with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
Now, this detail always makes me giggle a little bit. Uh, you know, it's John writing the biography after all. So, of course, he's the one who mentions like, yeah, and I beat Peter to the tomb, as if it was like an old rivalry. Um, so we kind of wonder, why does John include this little detail? I don't think he's bragging. I think actually um, it's, it's more helpful to understand this in light of the things that we remember when we go through trauma. And, and so like we remember all kinds of little details from difficult moments that we've all lived through. I remember when I was in a bike accident three years ago, I remember all kinds of details from that day. I remember locking the, the deadbolt at work on my way to, to go to my next appointment. And, uh, and I remember riding my bike and turning right onto Clark Street. And I remember listening to a podcast that some of my friends had put together. Then I remember um, going from smooth pavement to sort of the rough under pavement. And then the next thing I remember was waking up in an ambulance as if I had been sleeping for hours and hours and uh, being in the emergency room and then cutting open my favorite jeans so that they could give me the medical treatment. All kinds of little memories, all kinds of little details from living through a traumatic moment. What about you? Have you ever survived a really difficult experience? Do you remember all the little details? Maybe it was the, the chair that you were sitting in when you got the phone call and you got that cancer diagnosis for yourself or for someone that you love. Or maybe it was the grass that you were standing in as the tornado came and destroyed your house and you watched it happen. Or maybe it was the table that you sat at for the breakup. Maybe it was the news anchor uh, during 9-11 when you watched the Twin Towers fall, listening to the news anchor, his voice, and hearing his voice crack, actually. Or maybe it was walking down the empty shelves uh, during the recent quarantine where there should have been toilet paper, but there is no toilet paper. But then you found a package of toilet paper and you hugged it. And then you realize why the Charmin bear always hugs toilet paper. And you remember that. You'll never forget that. So for Peter and John, listen, I don't think it was like, ha ha, remember when I beat you to the tomb? I think it was more like, oh my goodness, do you remember running to the tomb? How horrible it felt. Just the, the pit in your stomach that the Lord may be stolen and that, that he may be desecrated at, uh, at that very hour. That was terrible. We thought that all hope was lost. On the surface, it did seem like all hope was lost. In that moment, it seemed like a nightmare, a, a true nightmare come true. Jesus crucified, Jesus' body stolen and desecrated. But thankfully, they took a moment to peer a little closer. Yes, things were horrible on the surface, but they peered a little bit below the surface and they found something they didn't expect. Maybe it was that there was just a touch more morning light at that point, um, and uh, it was just enough for them to look inside the tomb and see something that they did not yet see, uh, something hopeful beneath the surface. Look at verse 5. Um, and stooping to look in, this is John, John saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. So John, the faster one, admittedly, arrives first at the tomb. He's breathing hard, and he, he has the thought to, to look in. So he like stoops, he stoops, he looks in the, uh, the tomb of Jesus, and he, he peers, and he sees linen cloths lying there, like, um, 
the the grave clothes that were at one time around Jesus's body were like off to the side. Maybe they were in a bunch or maybe they were folded nicely. It doesn't say which one, but it's just odd that the grave clothes would have been like sitting there. If you're a grave robber, you're not going to politely go, okay, well, let's let's take the grave clothes and let's put them over here for the people to see when they come to the tomb. Um, it's just like this wouldn't have happened. If you were robbing a grave, you would have been going in and getting out as quickly as possible. Um, there would be no reason to politely remove the grave clothes. But John doesn't go in. He kind of sees it and, and just like stops, and maybe he freezes, and maybe he's processing. Well, then Peter, the slower one, comes, and uh, he's huffing, and he's puffing, and he just goes straight into the tomb. You know, he just goes headlong straight in. Verse 6 tells us about it. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, here's another detail, verse 7, and the face cloth, the, the handkerchief, if you will, uh, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, here we have a little bit more polite folding of clothes here, and it just gets stranger and stranger. It would be one thing to politely remove the grave clothes. It would be another thing to politely remove the face cloth, the head cloth, the handkerchief, and daintily fold it up and put it in a different spot in the tomb and leave it there for the people to find. It's just a really strange reality under the surface, a strange sign. And there have been lots of what we call signs, what John called signs in the Gospel of John. Um, what do these signs point to? These aren't horrible signs. These aren't signs of further trauma. These are actually hopeful signs. Indications that Jesus might be alive. Signs even that their worst nightmare was being undone. Yes, the nightmare did come true, but maybe the nightmare is being undone by the power of Jesus. It was a sign that the stone gave way not to a grave robber, but to a grave defeater, and that he was alive and walking around in the world bringing renewal wherever he went. It was true that the old world, the world of miracles and teaching and uh, hope of a coming Messiah, that that world was over, that it wasn't coming back. But it was also true that a new world was here, a new era of the Messiah's reign, a new era of King Jesus, a new power flowing through him and everyone that he touched. So while they were sheltering in place on the Sabbath, waiting to get out, wondering what they would see, Jesus had already left his place in the tomb. His quarantine was lifted before theirs, and he got to work. He was alive and well, making things new and getting the world ready for them. So I wonder what we would see if we could look beneath the surface. Things on the surface are bad um, in many different ways. And, um, but if we could look beneath the surface, I wonder what signs of hope we would see in our world. We might even see just the miracle of our own existence. Have you ever wondered about the miracle of you being alive, of you having the name that you have, of you having the history that you have, of all of the, the meaning and the purpose that has been shown to you for what God has for you, that can't be an accident. The fact that you and I are alive means that there is a loving God behind our existence, breathing life into us. 
we might see if we could look underneath the surface all of the times that God spared our life, protected us, held us up, protected us from evil, protected us from death, answered our prayer that uh, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. You know, every time I pass that spot on Clark Street, I see that seam of pavement where I smashed my face and helmet into the, into the ground. And I, I give thanks to God that he spared my life um, and that I was wearing a helmet. So kids wear a helmet when you go biking. Um, we're getting off topic. How often has God spared your life, kept you alive, kept you from evil? If we could look under the surface, we would see signs of God's love and mercy pouring out on our behalf. Where did all that love and life come from? It came from a risen Christ. We would see all the good that emerges in times of tragedy. We'd see that there's actually a force of grace in the world, alive and working beyond our control, that brings, that brings redemption and good out of tragedy. Maybe you've already seen it. Maybe you've already seen signs of goodness coming through this tragedy of COVID-19. You don't even have to be a Christian to see it, but maybe you've seen it. Maybe you, like Peter and John, peered a little closer beneath the surface and seen like a strange sign that God has been at work in this. If we could peer beneath the surface, we'd see historical evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. We'd see an empty tomb. We would see over 500 eyewitnesses from history with whom Jesus spoke, had breakfast with, ate with, and encouraged. And we would see that those people's lives changed forever, that they went from huddling into a room to living boldly and even going to their deaths on the testimony that Jesus is alive. And we don't go to our deaths for something that we think is not true. We don't go to our deaths for a lie or for something that we're pretending is true. They knew it was true because they saw him, they touched him, they had breakfast with him, and he filled them with his Holy Spirit. God won't bully us into hope. He just won't do it. But he will leave clues and hints and evidence that demonstrates that Jesus is alive. He'll leave folded headscarves and small miracles and changed lives. So if you have an open mind, I would invite you to start looking for the clues that God has left you. Ask him for them because he wants to be found by you. So things are horrible on the surface for his disciples, these early people who saw the, saw the empty tomb. But then there was something hopeful underneath the surface. And then there was just this belief that came before understanding. Before they had unpacked everything, there could be belief. Look at with me in verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John follows Peter's lead, and he goes into the scary tomb, and he stoops in, and he sees the evidence, and he believes. That means that he trusts, that he, uh, one pastor puts it like, relaxes into Jesus in his resurrection. He's still processing. Verse 9 says he doesn't yet understand the scriptures. Uh, he doesn't know how this all fits into God's plan. Um, but he's able to trust that Jesus is telling the truth. Jesus said he would be crucified. He was crucified. Jesus said he would rise again on the third day. Looks like Jesus rose again on the third day. Now how this all works together and how this fits together intellectually even 
Well, John would take time to, to get understanding of that. But he's trusting Jesus. He's relaxing into Jesus. He's giving his life to Jesus. Now, you and I don't have all the answers. All of us, whether we're raised as a Christian um, or we're not yet a Christian or somewhere in between, we have more to learn about the scriptures. All of us do. And every single one of us is still like processing and taking in how the COVID-19 crisis is changing our world and how God is good in the midst of all of it. Yet we can still, like John, relax into Jesus and trust that his new life is going to envelop the crisis that we're in. We can trust that Jesus is alive. We can trust uh, that there's hope in loss and in death and in horrible things happening and that there's a purpose for our life now going forward. Dr. Dave Walker is a South African medical doctor. I was reading his autobiography recently. Um, he uh, is an anesthesiologist and specializes in emergency care. Um, after many years as a religious skeptic, Dr. Walker discovered how much Jesus cared about people who were in crisis, people who were sick and suffering and dying. And so he began actually to experiment with the power of prayer with patients and pr just praying God's goodness over them and seeing God work. He eventually gave his life to Jesus and began to pray more regularly with his patients as they gave him permission to. Um, one such patient's name was, was Marion. Now, Marion was a woman who from childhood had emphysema, and it left her breathless most of the time if she were to do any kind of physical activity. Um, it severely limited her lung capacity, and he felt led to pray the goodness of God over Marion, and he asked her if he could, and, and she, she gave him permission. And uh, he just had this sense that God wanted to do a powerful work in her life. So he began to pray for her, and, and even um, leading up to the surgery, um, just had this sense that God was going to do something significant. The surgery went really well, but then after the surgery, uh, it didn't go as well as he thought it would. And he was confused, like, God, I thought you were going to come through for Marion. It just, the, the infection spread, and she only had just days to live. And so even in the midst of that crisis, it, and even in the midst of that, that loss, he was in her hospital room praying for her, and here's what happened. I'll read directly from the book. He says, uh, suddenly the room was filled with light. It was as if Jesus was physically present, and he started speaking to her through me. Although I was speaking, no words were being formed in my mind. I was actually listening as an awed spectator. The words came from Jesus. He spoke of his love for her and his power over all things. He spoke of words of his pleasure for Marion, of how he had longed to be close to her as he was now. Dr. Walker continues, I remember the sense of his presence as if it were yesterday. One could feel the peace that filled the room as if something physical. Time stood still. At the end, I came to myself, humbled, awestruck, and filled with a deep and quiet joy. Marion was then able to fall into a deep sleep. Two days later, she died. But the peace in that room where she was operated on and resting remained uh, for two days afterwards, after she died. All the nurses felt it. In fact, Marion's sisters came from the UK the day before she died. They, too, felt the peace when they entered the room, and they commented that it was the most remarkable experience of their life. And he just goes on to reflect that though Jesus had invited Marion to actually come to the end of her life, 
that he showed his goodness to her and his power to her and enveloped even her death in his peace. Jesus was present to John, Peter, and Mary Magdalene that first Easter morning. They couldn't see it at first, uh, but they could see the folds of grave clothes. He was present to Dr. Walker and Marion after a failed surgery. They couldn't see him, but they could feel his presence and hear his words of comfort. Jesus is alive, and he is present to you, and he is present to me. He's come to comfort and heal and forgive and restore our hope. And I wonder what it would be like now for us to trust him. For us to trust him and just relax into him as John did, and eventually as Mary Magdalene and Peter did. There's kind of an interesting detail at the very end of our text. Let's look at it together in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. There they went, back into quarantine. <laughs> what would life be like now? John and Peter go back to their homes. Maybe they're processing, discussing what they saw. Maybe John's sharing with Peter the fact that he can believe now that Jesus was telling the truth and that he was alive. Um, what would have been like for them to walk back into their house to process this, and then for two days later, uh, or, or maybe even that same night, for Jesus to walk through their locked door and breathe, breathe peace on both of them and fill them and envelop them with his peace and his life and his power. Maybe you are also a skeptic like the disciples or like Dr. Walker was in his early career. Um, Jesus is ready to show himself to you. He is. He wants to envelop your life with his life. You'll never be the same. Um, he wants to give you hope for your life now and for your life forever with him on the other end of death. So I want to encourage you, if you're a skeptic and you have not trusted Jesus this morning, to ask Jesus to show himself to you like Dr. Walker did. Ask him to show you signs like those folded grave clothes. Ask him to show you how he is with you in this crisis. You can even pray, Jesus, I welcome you in my life. Show me that you're real, that you're alive. Forgive my sin and lead me into your life. He will answer that prayer. Now, maybe you are a Christian, yet you're weary now. You're discouraged. You feel like this, is, you know, this Easter isn't anything like you wanted it to be. Um, I invite you to become like John or Dr. Walker later in his career and invite Jesus to turn your ordinary home, right where you're sitting, into a temple, into an altar to the living God, into a sanctuary of his presence. Um, we're going to renew our baptismal vows in just a moment. I want to challenge you and invite you to use that opportunity of your baptismal vows to ask the Lord through those baptismal vows to make your body a living sacrifice and to make your home a temple of his resurrection presence and power going forward. Um, let's renew our devotion to Jesus and let's ask him to show us his wonderful and amazing power. And I'll end with the prayer from Easter Vigil. O God of unchangeable power and eternal life, Look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him, through whom all things were made. Your Son, the risen Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen.